Welcome to Crime Below Zero, where the temperatures are cold, but the crime is colder. I'm your host, Courtney, and I live on a remote island in Alaska called Prince of Wales Island. While the temperatures don't quite reach below zero here, for much of this wild state, it does. I will be exploring all sorts of crime in the great state of Alaska and telling you about it. So let's get started with this week's story. August 4th, 1971, Paul Stavignord and two of his friends robbed the Seward branch of First National Bank of Anchorage. Paul was 20, Robert Jett was 22, and Randall Simmons was 19. Before they entered the bank, they took a random girl on the street hostage and then ran into the bank waving around two pistols and a sawed-off shotgun. There were eight employees and 14 customers inside the bank that were ordered on the ground while they emptied the teller's cash drawers. They argued with the bank manager who reluctantly gave up the key to the vault. Now, maybe you don't argue back with bank robbers with guns. You just give over the money and preserve your own life. But that's just me. Paul held open a rubberized green bag and Randall stuffed it full of money. They would make out with $150,000, adjusted for inflation, $1,108,037. Now there's only one road in and out of Seward, and the police could set up a roadblock and block them in pretty quickly. So the robbers came up with a creative but difficult alternate escape route. They decided to escape on foot through the mountains across the Kenai Peninsula into the city of Kenai. Before they took off on foot, however, they planned to torch the car that they stole in Anchorage the day prior. They figured it would also create a diversion and give them more time to get away on foot. The bank robbery was not lost on the local police. The only on-duty officer was sitting in his patrol car outside the bank the entire time. Not wanting to cause a panic and get anyone harmed in a gunfight, he waited the robbery out. When he witnessed the group escape, he went in the bank to check on everyone inside while a city worker was outside in his work truck, following the group of robbers down the street as they made their way to Mount Marathon. The robbers had set up three different campsites on the Kenai side of the mountain, but they had no real idea how rugged the terrain was going to be on foot. They were walking for so long that they eventually had to discard the money. It weighed 40 pounds and they couldn't keep dragging it along. They took all this time to plan a robbery. They get $150,000 and they don't even want to put it in any pockets to save any of it? Anyway. They left the green rubber bag in an alder thicket where police found it and later returned it to the bank. Maybe they were going to come back for it. Who knows? They continued hiking across the mountain, but they couldn't handle the tough terrain, so they turned back towards Seward to hopefully just blend in with the crowd. By now... There was a massive manhunt happening. 
there were 25 FBI agents, state troopers, local police, plus citizens that were deputized and armed. The road out of town was sealed off, so was the airstrip, and there was a helicopter sweeping the area looking for the group. Paul, Randall, and Robert camped at the tree line of Mount Marathon before splitting up and they went on the run for a couple of days. Three days after the split, Paul popped out of the bushes 50 feet away from Seward Police Chief Bill Baggin. Paul didn't even notice the police cruiser before stepping onto the highway, and he was armed with a pistol and a knife. Even so, Paul was taken into custody without incident. Shortly after, Robert and Randall were found at a Seward restaurant dining on bowls of chili, and were also taken into custody without incident. All three of them had lengthy criminal records, from receiving and stealing stolen property all the way to larceny and armed robbery. They all were convicted of armed robbery and sentenced each to six-year prison terms. Paul served his time at the federal penitentiary in Lompoc, California, and was released on probation in 1975. Paul had a difficult childhood in Everett, Washington. His mother divorced his father when he was young and told him that his father was an alcoholic. She married two more times and Paul had trouble with both stepdads. The family moved to Seward in 1965 when Paul was in ninth grade. Shortly after he started his new school, he was expelled for using racist language towards his African-American teacher. He never went back to school after that. He was prone to dark moods and would often sit in his dark room with a faraway look in his eyes. Over the next two years, he was arrested five times for theft, breaking and entering, and ransacking an ex-girlfriend's home, returning with a gun threatening to kill himself. Once in 1966, while he was serving time at an Anchorage juvenile facility, his group took a field trip to play baseball at Central Junior High School, and he ran away from the field, stole a car, and led the police on a high-speed chase through the city. For this, he spent two more years in McLaughlin Youth Center and was released in 1968. Six months later, he robbed a liquor store at gunpoint and made off with $190. That adjusted for inflation is $1,633. For this, he spent three more years behind bars and he said he did it to support a heroin and LSD addiction. This timeline means that very shortly after he was released for this crime, he gathered his two friends and committed the bank heist. After Paul's release in 1975 for the bank heist, he by all accounts cleaned his act up and turned into a different person altogether. He took a job with Alaska Railroad and stayed there for more than 20 years as a track inspector and repairer. Paul also fell in love. First with Chulitna, a wilderness area near the railroad he was working on, about 40 miles north of Talkeetna. And then with Peggy Hogarty. Peggy was 23 and a waitress on rail cars. The two got married and then two years later had their daughter Rebecca. The family settled in Chulitna and Paul built them a cabin and they lived there for 11 years while Paul worked at the railroad and Peggy homeschooled Rebecca. 
Paul also became a craftsman. He bought a pewter cast for melting different raw materials down to make a liquid that can in turn be molded into jewelry, buttons, clasps, and even statuettes. He used this to turn out otters, small seals, and buttons that he would sell at the Anchorage Fur Rendezvous and other festivals. He also began crafting flutes from ivory, bone, and antlers. He not only learned to carve flutes, but he learned how to play them and eventually how to write flute music. He loved dressing as a trapper and going to the Anchorage Fur Rendezvous to show off his costumes and sell his trinkets and flutes. He even won an award one year for the best pre-1840 costume. They loved the mountain man type of lifestyle. Peggy was having her own internal struggles, however. They lived in a very secluded area. The nearest neighbor was a mile away. The nearest phone was eight miles away. And Rebecca was homeschooled and probably had no friends. By the time their son Josh was born in 1984, Peggy really pushed Paul to move closer to civilization. They bought a cabin in Trapper Creek, still secluded, but it was at least on the school bus route. Paul still enjoyed his life and was drawn to spiritual gatherings, and he made friends at these gatherings of different religious organizations. He began recording his flute music and making CDs that he would try to sell, including a set of Native American tunes. He loved teaching children, music, and the wilderness. He even left his job at the railroad to care for special education kids. Paul may have outwardly looked like a good guy, but he was a difficult husband and provider. The cabin in Trapper Creek had no generator, so Peggy and the kids went without power or running water, and this was the last straw for Peggy. The couple separated and Peggy filed for divorce in 1991, stating that Paul couldn't provide for her financially or emotionally. The divorce was quite amicable and Paul stayed a big part of his kids' lives. He left Alaska for a short time while with a girlfriend, but returned in 1997 because he wanted to do more with his son. During this time, he was known to be a perfect gentleman. He gave a friend of his a cake he made from scratch for her birthday, along with a card in which he wrote an original poem for her. Paul's nearest neighbor was a couple named Ricky Beery and Deborah Rahor, about a mile away. This was Rick and Debbie's dream cabin that they didn't permanently live in yet, but they spent almost every weekend they could there. Ricky Beery was a 48-year-old electrician who lived in the Matanuska Valley community of Big Lake, Alaska, where he worked at Fisher's Fuel. His new wife, Deborah Rahor, was 40 years old and was a longtime employee of Matanuska Electric Association as a customer service representative. They had been together 10 years and only married for two. Rick was born and raised in Alaska and only left for a short time when he was in the Navy serving two tours of Vietnam. Debbie was from Denver, where she fell in love with fishing and the outdoors. She also married young, had a son, and then got divorced moving to Wasilla, Alaska shortly thereafter to live closer to her brother. The couple's dream cabin in Chalukna was homesteaded by Rick's dad and he planned on retiring up there. 
To get up there, Rick would park or get dropped off at a point on the park's highway and ride his four-wheeler the eight miles into the wilderness to their cabin. There was also a train stop that would drop people off and pick others up at a flag stop where people could hail trains by the tracks. It was pretty secluded, but there were a few neighbors, just a mile apart at the very least. Rick and Debbie did have complaints about Paul over the time they were near him. Rick had complained to friends that Paul had stolen fuel, a 22 rifle, and a snow machine. Granted, he was only suspected of these thefts, but he was the closest neighbor, and he didn't rub them the right way. Rick once sold Paul a cellular antenna, and Paul took a cable that wasn't part of the deal. When Rick sent word through another neighbor that he wanted Paul to pay for it, Paul simply returned the cable, but he cut it to pieces. Winter was finally coming to an end Memorial Day weekend in 1997, so Rick and Debbie planned to spend the weekend at their cabin. Rick went a day before Debbie, then she met him at the highway point where she left her car, and she rode with Rick on the four-wheeler the eight miles into the wilderness. Rick and Debbie were both to return to work the Tuesday after Memorial Day, and when they didn't show up, Debbie's brother Don Tidwell started the trek to the cabin. When he arrived, he didn't see their two dogs outside, which was unusual for them to do. The dogs would usually be outside if they took off for just a few hours, and they would have returned to make sure they were fed, and these dogs looked very hungry. Something bad had probably happened. He went next door to Paul Stavenord's cabin to ask if he had seen Rick or Debbie, and Paul said that him and Rick got into an argument and he hadn't seen them in over a year. Don got an uneasy feeling from Paul, and while he was walking back to the couple's cabin, Paul followed him, saying he just wanted to be part of the search. Don waited for the couple at the cabin, hoping maybe they had bear trouble or something, but he did so huddled in a corner with his rifle on his lap because he didn't trust this Paul guy. Wednesday, Rick and Debbie still hadn't turned up, so he sent a missing persons report through a friend to the state troopers. The troopers launched a search for the couple and very quickly found Rick's body in a creek 200 yards from his four-wheeler and two miles from the cabin. He had been shot in the head. There was no sign of Debbie or her red four-wheeler yet. There weren't many people around or witnesses to anything, but there was an electrical company installing fiber optic cables along the mountain, and they said they saw Rick's four-wheeler the Saturday and Sunday they were working. They said it was in the creek to begin with, but when they happened upon it for a second time during their work, they noticed that someone had pulled it out to dry land, and there was a campsite nearby. So they figured all was fine. Since Debbie was missing, she became suspect number one, but everyone who knew her said that this was impossible. They loved each other and didn't have many marital troubles at all. Then the police got a call from someone named Gavin Saha, he stated he was camping near where the four-wheeler was found. He was the one who pulled it out of the creek, but said he never saw Rick's body, and he said he went through the duffel bag attached to the luggage rack and took a bottle of Pepsi and a piece of gum, but told police that he left everything else untouched. For a week, everyone along the railroad was locking their doors and watching their backs. They were scared since the murder was unsolved and Debbie was still missing. Then. A week after searchers found Rick, they
They found Debbie downstream in the same creek, and her body was covered in tree limbs and grass. She was naked from the waist down. Her autopsy revealed that she had had rough sex shortly before her death, and she was also shot in the head. Her four-wheeler was nowhere around her body. After Debbie was found, the investigators had DNA from the perpetrator to start comparing to suspects. The first person they tested was the camper Gavin Saha. His DNA came back not a match, and he went on about his life. He wasn't the only person they asked for DNA. Investigators were suspicious of Rick and Debbie's nearest neighbor, Paul Stavignard. His account of the day the couple went missing was not holding up well. He refused to give DNA samples and he refused a search of his cabin. Paul told the troopers that he was in Fairbanks for the Memorial Day weekend celebration and even gave details of where he ate and where he got gas along the trip. When troopers tried following up on his alibis, no one could remember seeing him at all. To top it all off, Gavin Saha had mentioned that he noticed smoke curling up out of Paul's chimney while he was camping. Troopers came back with a warrant for DNA swabs Paul cooperated, but then promptly took off from his cabin when they left. The railroad workers claimed to have seen him walking along the tracks, and he had shaved his beard and mustache off. A security guard that worked near the railroad track saw Paul crash a red four-wheeler into the bridge and took off running into the woods. It was Debbie's four-wheeler. Soon after these reports came in, DNA tests came back a match to Paul and the troopers obtained a warrant for his arrest on charges of first-degree murder and rape. Since Paul had gone on the run, troopers posted flyers with his picture in full beard and mustache, accompanied by a computer simulation of him clean-shaven. These pictures were posted everywhere. Restaurants, police stations, gas stations, boat launches, campgrounds, and all the way up to the Royal Canadian Mountain Police in Canada nearest to Chalitna. This became a seriously large manhunt. Troopers went into his cabin on the mountain and found a journal. There was an entry in there about meeting Debbie, playing his flute for her, having sex with her, and her calling Rick from a cell phone, which was not proven by any phone records obtained. Paul also claimed not to have a small caliber gun like the one used in the murders, but another neighbor said he saw Paul walking with such a gun the week prior to the killings. The wilderness manhunt for this guy was intense. Some troopers were stationed on mountaintops and some on bridges offering a long-range view. Others were donned in camouflage, face paint, extra pistols strapped to their ankles, and armed with high-powered rifles. These troopers were tree-hopping through the dense underbrush of the forest. The need for all these guns were not just due to the dangerous manhunt, but also due to the heavy grizzly bear activity in the area. Paul's family and friends were taken aback by the accusations against him. To them, he was the nicest person, thoughtful and gentle. They figured he was innocent and had fled because of his past criminal history. Now this does beg the question though, what was the motive here? Paul hadn't committed a crime for about 20 years, so why now? And why murder? The family hired Carmen Gutierrez, one of Alaska's best defense attorneys, 
and she issued a public plea for Paul to give himself up and not to hurt himself. Even with this plea, the manhunt continued for about a month with no results. Then, on July 12th, Paul called Carmen Gutierrez and said he was ready to turn himself in. They met for a few hours before she called a trooper friend who came to take him in. Miss Gutierrez said Paul wanted to go down to the station to declare his innocence and clear the situation up. Paul's surrender almost cost him his 15 minutes of fame. America's Most Wanted was filming in Alaska and had been following the manhunt. Even though he surrendered, producers decided to air his spot anyway, probably to let the nation know he had been caught. Paul had quite the story for troopers about where he was during the manhunt. He said he had gone back to his cabin the day after the manhunt began, and then one more time after it had ended, and no one noticed. He said that during one of those return trips is when he took Debbie's four-wheeler and saw the security guard, who he thought was a trooper, so he freaked out, rolled the four-wheeler, and took off on foot into the woods. He had canoed to a camping spot in Pass Creek and eluded police there for a short time. He also hopped a slow-moving freight train and took it away from the area, where he then found a private shuttle van to Fairbanks, where he stayed for a week, then took a shuttle to Anchorage, then Homer, where he camped out for two weeks. From there, he went back to Chalitna and hiked back to his cabin for two days until he decided to go back to Anchorage, where he met up with a friend who convinced him to contact Carmen Gutierrez. After he was picked up in Anchorage, he was held at the Cook Inlet pretrial facility on two counts of first-degree murder, one count of sexual assault, and two counts of theft. His bail was $1 million, cash only, until his trial began in Palmer. Paul went on trial in April 1998, and his defense team was comprised of Carmen Gutierrez and another of Alaska's most prominent defense attorneys, Jim McComas. They had quite the story to tell the jury as to how the murders occurred. They argued that Rick had come upon Paul and Debbie half-naked, having just had sex, and that Rick started yelling about how he was going to blow Paul's head off. Then Rick pulled out a gun and started shooting. Paul dove down to the ground, pulled out his 22 pistol from his vest pocket, and shot Rick in the forehead, killing him. When Paul turned around, Debbie was already down, having been shot by Rick on accident. Gutierrez argued that Paul had decided police would never believe that Debbie was killed by her own husband, and he killed Rick in self-defense, so he dragged Debbie's body to the creek and covered her up with branches and grass. Rick's body had floated into a pool of water where Paul had left him, so he just picked up the shell casings and tried to hide Rick's four-wheeler, but it was already stuck in the creek, so he just left that there too. She argued that Paul never stole anything from Rick, that he had put a down payment on the snow machine and taken it away with permission from Rick. Gutierrez asked for Paul to be able to play the flute melody he claimed to have played for Debbie before her death. The judge allowed it, but sent the jury out of the courtroom. He had a slew of defense witnesses as well, including a former girlfriend, an art dealer, and a woman who had asked Paul to father her children because she was unable to conceive with her husband. 
Now, it's clear that the outside world and people close to him truly believed he was a good guy. So it still begs the question, why would he do murder? Was his relationship with his neighbors that bad? The prosecution says Paul's story was all lies, and investigators believed that Rick had arrived at his cabin before Memorial Day and noticed a couple of things missing and confronted Paul. Paul knew that Rick was going to be meeting Debbie the next day, so he ambushed the couple and began his attack. At the end of the two-month trial, the jury found Paul Stavignor guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. A juror stated that Paul's story was just unbelievable and that he found Paul had answers ready for his defense examination, but on cross-examination, he seemed less forthcoming. He was acquitted on the two counts of theft and the one count of rape. Nothing in my research would say why. His children were in attendance and 13-year-old Josh cried along with his college-age sister, Rebecca. Several months before the sentencing phase, Paul's two attorneys withdrew from the case, stating that the attorney-client relationship had suffered a total breakdown. He was assigned a public defender who immediately asked for a new trial on the basis that Paul lied in his testimony and that his attorneys knew he was lying the whole time. His previous attorneys acknowledged that Paul had lied to them, but they said that at the time they believed him. His public defender said that these lies prejudiced the jury against him. Ultimately, this new trial was denied. Paul was sentenced to 198 years in prison. Rick and Debbie's bodies were cremated and scattered across Ruby Lake, their favorite fishing spot. Debbie was always known to catch a fish there when no one else could even get a bite. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at CrimeBelowZero and listen on Spotify or anchor.fm slash CrimeBelowZero. Thanks for listening and join me next time for a very cold crime.